Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Speaking to his flock in the Archdiocese of Portland in Oregon, we join Archbishop Alexander Sample as he reflects upon our faith, culture, and life in the church on The Voice of the Shepherd. Joining Archbishop Sample is your host, Dina Marie Hale. And now, The Voice of the Shepherd. Greetings and welcome to The Voice of the Shepherd. I'm your host, Dina Marie Hale, and along with Archbishop Sample, we come together. And this week, we're going to discuss a little bit of the Fall General Assembly. The bishops gathered earlier in November and an opportunity to hear the heart of the shepherd and particularly the role of the Eucharist. So I'm really looking forward to hearing about that. So Archbishop, as we get started, would you please open us in prayer? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, as we get closer and closer to the great solemnity of Christmas, and as we prepare to welcome again your Son into our hearts and into our homes, we ask you to be with us now and to pour out your Spirit upon us, to open our minds and hearts and the hearts and minds of our listeners, that you may speak a word to us of encouragement and hope in this time. So we place this radio time in your hand, Father, knowing that you will lead us and guide us. And all this we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Holy Mary, our hope, seat of wisdom. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So in November, once again, the bishops were able to come together in person this time. So praise God, in person for most everybody. And again, a lot of discussion committees that would meet, but maybe give us a sense of just the role of the bishops coming together for this type of an assembly, and then we'll unpack a little bit of some of the highlights. Sure, sure. Yeah, this is the first time the bishops have been able to gather together in person since this meeting, the November meeting in 2019. Uh, you know, so it's really, it's been two years since we've had any kind of a face-to-face encounter with, you, with each other. Yeah, the, the, the meeting that, that we're talking about is a meeting that happens every November. We call it, uh, funny enough, the November meeting uh, <laughs> uh, of the USCCB, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. So this is our annual gathering of all the bishops from the United States uh, who come together for a week. Uh, to really carry on the business, if you will, of the Bishops' Conference, the work of the bishops of the United States, the work that we do together, Mm -hmm. I should say. I mean, obviously, every bishop does his own ministry and work in his own diocese, but this is the work that we do together as a a united uh, group of bishops across the whole United States. So we always have our our November meeting in Baltimore, primarily because that's close to the USCCB headquarters, Mm -hmm. and so much of this work... Um, behind the scenes and, and the meetings and preparation is done by the staff of the USCCB in Washington, D.C., so it makes it easier, obviously, for them. And then we also meet, we have what we call it our June meeting. Our June meeting, though, moves around. Uh, that will locate to different parts of the country, different cities across the country. And every three years, the June meeting takes on more uh, the sort of flavor, if you will, of a retreat. We don't do business at that meeting. Uh, we come together, reflect, and pray, uh, you know, kind of about where the Holy Spirit is leading mm-hmm. us, you know, in, in, in our time. But this November meeting is the main sort of business meeting, if you will, of the, of the work of the conference uh, uh, throughout the year. 
Right. And then for you, Archbishop, some of the different committees, the particular work that you are collaborating with other bishops, maybe just share with us a little bit of some of your own personal connections with those particular apostolates. Right. Right now, um, there are different committees of the conference that carry on the work of the conference in different areas. Uh, I I serve on the uh, Bishop's Committee for Pro-Life Activities, uh, chaired by Archbishop Nauman of Kansas City. And uh, so I'm very privileged and proud to, to, to serve on the Pro-Life Committee of the Bishop's Conference, uh, incredibly important committee uh, of the conference. Uh, a new chair will now take over, Archbishop Laurie of Baltimore. And I don't know if I will continue to serve on that committee or not. You know, when, when a new chairman mm-hmm. is, is installed, so to speak, um, he chooses the members of the committee, and, and sometimes they'd like to mix things up a little bit. So, um, And then I also serve on the, the committee that we affectionately call LimFly, the LimFly Committee, <laughs> which is laity, marriage, family life, and youth. Uh, and that uh, committee is chaired by Archbishop Corleone of San Francisco, and he continues as chair. We've elected a new chair, but the new chair won't take over until uh, the fall uh, next year, November meeting, and that's uh, Bishop Robert Barron, uh, an auxiliary in uh, Los Angeles. And, of course, a lot of people know Bishop mm-hmm. Barron by word on fire. So I serve on the, that, that, that Laity Marriage, Family Life, and Youth Committee, had a conversation uh, with the new chair, and he's looking forward uh, to the to the future. Also, I'm currently on a working group that's working on the uh, putting some national directives together for the institution of the the office of catechumen that the Holy Father uh, he came out with a motu proprio. He instituted the ministry of catechist in the church as a formal ministry, uh, like the ministry of lector, like mm-hmm. the ministry of of uh, acolyte it's a ministry we've talked about you know we have um catechists and that but but we've used that term more as a teacher this is a formal instituted uh, lay ministry of the church as catechist and so the bishops in the united states need to uh, develop some guidelines Mm -hmm. for qualifications for this and the formation program ongoing formation of catechists uh, so I'm I'm on the working group that's helping put together those those directives. So that's that's my involvement in the conference beyond uh, just just being a, one of the bishops as a member of the conference. Right, right. And then going through this mm-hmm. week, Archbishop, maybe just give us some of the highlights of what you were looking forward to having discussed. I know we talked before you went into the conference. Right. The idea of the Eucharist and the revitalization right. of the Holy Eucharist. Right. You know the meeting. One of the unique features of this meeting, which I absolutely loved, and quite honestly, most of the bishops I talked to also just thought it was terrific. We normally end the meeting in prayer. <laughs> Uh, in other words, we, we do our business, if you will. Uh, well, the committees start meeting on the weekend before. Monday morning, we usually start our business. Uh, we usually conclude all of our business by Wednesday evening. And then Thursday morning is a time for prayer and reflection for us. So we, we have a holy hour, a Eucharistic holy hour, during which we get a, 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 a reflection by one of the bishops. We have confessors available to hear the confessions of the bishops. Um, we spend time in prayer. We do Mass together. Um, we normally conclude the meeting with that. Well, unfortunately, because the business, so to speak, is finished on Wednesday evening, a lot of the bishops, to get back to their dioceses, will leave uh, Thursday morning. And uh, uh, and, and so the, the crowd, sadly, you know, kind of dwindles. Well, this time, 
really because of some of the important work we had on this agenda, especially the Eucharistic uh, document and the effort there, the chairman uh, of our conference, who is Archbishop, uh, president of the Conference of, of Catholic Bishops, uh, who is Archbishop uh, Jose Gomez of Los Angeles, began the meeting with prayer. So we came, we still did the committee work on the weekend, but we came Monday morning. We spent all Monday morning until noon in prayer. We had Mass together. We had Eucharistic exposition of the Blessed Sacrament. We did have a reflection by one of the bishops. We had uh, confessions going on for the bishops to avail themselves of these confessors, mostly religious priests that are brought in. We prayed the rosary together. Uh, We prayed morning prayer, midday prayer together. It was beautiful. But I think beginning the meeting Mm -hmm. in prayer and asking for the guidance of the Holy Spirit made all the difference in the world. You could almost feel it that we invited the Spirit to come and guide us. So I think the intent is to continue with that pattern going forward, that we begin with prayer, because mm-hmm. uh, uh, we need, certainly, <laughs> we need uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, especially. So, you know, I, I guess I would say just some of the highlights uh, of the meeting. I'll, I'll mention just them briefly, but then I want to kind of talk a little bit more about the probably the most important uh, and uh, work that we accomplished at this meeting probably and certainly which got the the most of the media attention. So first of all, we approved uh, a new set of statutes, national statutes for the catechumenate. Mm -hmm. Uh, So these, and and both English and Spanish. Uh, So these are just basically the guidelines uh, that the, it's it's like a, a local law, if you will, for the United States governing how the catechumenate is is administered and seen. Those the catechumenate, I you know, I, somebody pointed out to me the other day. You know, you know, sometimes you people in the church use churchy words that we don't <laughs> right. understand. And I just realized I may have just used one catechumenate. What is that? And I'm for many that people know what that is. The catechumenate is the period of preparation for baptism uh, for adults. Uh, so the catechumenate is that period of time where those who are seeking baptism in the, in the Catholic Church go through a period of preparation, formation, education, uh, spiritual development to prepare for baptism, and that those people who are in the catechumenate are called catechumens. And so the period, though, the period of time of preparation is called the catechumenate. So these are just some national guidelines for how that's to be conducted. <clears throat> in the area of liturgy and divine worship, uh, the bishops approved two new translations of two rituals of the church. These documents have been around. We've had them, but they were translated, you know, a long time, decades ago, um, before we had that document uh, called Liturgicum Authenticum, which sought to bring a, a, a new um, effort at translation. The Liturgicum Authenticum, the document, gave guidelines for how translations are to be done uh, from the original Latin. See, people need to understand that Latin is still the mother tongue uh, of mm-hmm. our church, and so the rituals of the church are all uh, written first in Latin. Right. So the, uh, the, we call it the editio typica, or the, the, the sort of the, the typical edition, or the, the guiding edition is in Latin, but then that has to be translated into vernacular languages. Well, the principles that were used in translation shortly after the Second Vatican Council were more of a what we call a dynamic equivalency approach, where 
the the ideas were were mm-hmm. translated, not so much the words. Whereas liturgi- liturgicum authenticum called for a more faithful translation of the actual Latin texts and the Latin style, quite honestly, uh, and how the Latin language is, is expressed. So these two rituals had been around for a while, but were just recently retranslated from the original Latin, uh, taking into account those those principles of translation to hold us more faithful to the original Latin. And those two rituals were uh, the, the ritual for Holy Communion and worship of the Eucharist uh, outside of Mass. So this would govern, you know, how the distribution of communion outside of Mass is to be conducted. Uh, but the heart of the ritual really is Eucharistic uh, adoration, uh, mm-hmm. exposition, different forms of Eucharistic adoration outside of Mass. So all those forms of Eucharistic devotion that take place officially, liturgically, according to the rituals of the church outside of mass are contained in this ritual. So, you know, basically the basic outline of a holy hour, for example, mm-hmm. and how the how the blessed sacrament is exposed, what happens during the holy hour, how is it concluded and with benediction and the like. So that might be what people are familiar with. So we have a new translation of that. The second uh, thing that was translated is the uh, what we call the OCIA, the Order of Christian Initiation of Adults. So this is the ritual right. that we use, uh, you know, throughout the period of the catechumenate, and up through, especially during the the rituals that take place and the ceremonies that take place during the season of Lent in preparation for Easter, and of course, the the grand finale, if you will, at the Easter vigil, the initiation of of new adults into the church. Uh, so this has been now retranslated, uh, both in Spanish and, and in English. So, uh, so we have uh, new rituals there. So that was liturgy. We had a, we had a workshop uh, conducted by one of the preeminent canon lawyers in the church. Uh, he's Archbishop Shikluna from Malta, conducted a video training for the bishops on the new section of the Code of Canon Law on Penal Law, uh, Book uh, 6 of, of the Code of Canon Law, which uh, you know covers the penal law of the church penalties. You know what are penalties? Uh, what are the penalties? You know how are they uh, imposed? What are you know all of everything that has to do with penal law, uh, criminal law, if you will, in the church? And some people are very surprised to learn that the church mm-hmm. actually has a penal code. Right. Uh, you know there are seven books uh, in, in the code of canon law. Uh, this is book six on on penalties. And it's been revised in light of recent decades and, and what the church has been through, especially with the sex abuse crisis and other scandals in the church. Um, so it's, it's been just sort of brought up to date and in conformity with some of the changes that have been made in the church's practice outside of what was currently in the Code of Canon Law. So again, the code is just what it says. It's a way of codifying the law, uh, making it universal for the church, and so everybody sort of is working from the same uh, you know, set of, of, of laws mm-hmm. and procedures in the church. So we had some training on that just to make us more aware of it. Uh, we approved the uh, uh, the review of the Charter for the Protection of Children and Young People. You know, we all know this document was produced at the at the Dallas meeting in 2002 of the Bishop's Conference, the June meeting, uh, in wake of the of the sex abuse crisis out of the Boston Globe stories that, that emerged and all of the terrible... A new wave of of uh, scandal that that uh, was unleashed in the church. It was just a horrible time. But anyway, the charter for the t- protection of children and young people was what the document that the bishops produced to deal with this crisis in the church and to ensure that first of all that this never happens again. 
uh, that perpetrators are held properly accountable for their actions, and that outreach and healing as much as possibly be brought to the victims, survivors of sexual abuse, and also to the parish communities that are that are affected by it as well. So it was due for a normal, regular review in 2025, but again, because of some so much of what's happened in recent years, you know, especially in the wake of the McCarrick scandal, and <clears throat> Vos Estes Lux Mundi, the new document that the Pope put out on how to handle bishops who have either abused or who have mishandled these cases. So uh, we've decided it needs to be updated sooner than 2025, so we've approved a review now uh, uh, of, of the Charter to make it sure it's up to date and, and continues to be effective uh, in helping us fight this, this, this blight and plague and, and sin and crime uh, that, that we've experienced. One of the great pieces of news was that uh, our beloved St. Teresa of Calcutta, Mother Teresa, uh, has now officially been uh, uh, enrolled, if you will, in the calendar, the liturgical calendar of the United States of America. Now, we all know and love Mother Teresa in the United (laughs) States and and now St. Teresa of Calcutta, but up until this move, she wasn't on our liturgical calendar. In other words her feast day was not observed mm-hmm. in the United States. See, not all the saints of the, that are on the calendar of the church are, are honored or observed in every country. Some saints are particular to particular mm-hmm. countries um, because that's you know, where they're most closely connected. Um, so Mother Teresa, St. Teresa of Calcutta, uh, I'm not sure where up until now other countries had her on their calendar, but... She's not in the universal calendar of the church, which means she's that the universal calendar means every country, every local church throughout the world would celebrate a feast day. I mean, something like, you know, the feast of Saints Peter and Paul. Yeah. Well, the whole church is going to celebrate that one. Others, there are particular calendars that are particular to uh, an individual country uh, and sometimes to a diocese, sometimes to a religious mm-hmm. community. So in the, the particular calendar for the United States, uh, St. Teresa of Calcutta, Calcutta was not on the calendar. But now the bishops have approved her to be on our calendar here in the United States as an optional memorial on September 5th each year. Okay. So uh, next year we'll, we'll, we'll get to celebrate yes. uh, uh, St. Teresa of Calcutta on our, on our calendar. The final work and the one that really got the most media attention was this document that the bishops produced on the Eucharist. And again, I, you know, people need to understand that the document is simply a part of a Eucharistic revival mm-hmm. effort that is going on through the Bishops' Conference for the Church here in the United States because of a great concern over <clears throat> a, a, a diminishing faith and belief and practice and living out mm-hmm. of the Eucharistic mystery. I think it was alarming those few years ago when we saw that Pew Research study, and I think we mentioned this in a previous program, <clears throat> that showed that only a third of the Catholics polled had a proper understanding and belief in the Eucharist as the true body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ truly, substantially, really present, that it really is Jesus. <clears throat> so that was a that was a great concern. But, you know, we've been through this pandemic and, you know, the closing of churches and, and the people who've been away from Mass, people who've been attending Mass via Zoom or whatever, uh, uh, web-based means, there's great concern that uh, people's faith in the Eucharist is diminished 
people's practice uh, of the Eucharist, especially the attendance at Mass, is diminished. And we've got to do something about this mm-hmm. because the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Church's life, uh, as the Second Vatican Council reaffirmed for us. Uh, it's everything. It's the culmination. It's, it's the source of our life as, as a church, but also as individual Christians. And it's also the summit, the chief, the, the, the peak experience of the church. I mean, we should see Sunday worship as the uh, beginning of our week and as mm-hmm. the high point of our week, you know. And unfortunately, I don't think very many of us see it that way. So anyway, there's this great effort at Eucharistic Revival at play in, in, in the Bishop's Conference where we can reignite that, that faith in the Eucharist. You know, St. John Paul II spoke in his last encyclical letter to the church, Ecclesia de Eucharistia, the church draws her life from the Eucharist, said he wished to reawaken this, what he called a Eucharistic amazement in the church, a Eucharistic amazement, that we should mm. be amazed mm-hmm. at the mystery of the Eucharist. We really should be, and, and we've lost that awe and reverence and being amazed mm-hmm. that God would 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 give us this incredible gift, the gift of himself in the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Eucharist. So, uh, you know, this is what the bishops hope to do is help us reawaken that Eucharistic right. amazement in the, in the church. This is all going to culminate uh, in, in a National Eucharistic Congress mm-hmm. in the year 2024. And we're all kind of going to be building towards that by having local uh, diocesan national events feeding into the National Eucharistic Congress. But a big piece of this is this teaching document. And the title of the document, this is available to our listeners if they go to the USCCB website, usccb.org, uh, they can find this document on the website. It's called The Mystery of the Eucharist in the Life of the Church. And this is meant to reawaken our faith in, in the Eucharist. And so just very briefly, it's, it's divided into two parts. The first part is what we believe and the second part is, what is our response? Mm, okay. So the whole first part of this document talks about our faith. What is it that the church believes and teaches about the Eucharist, right? So the first part, uh, or the first section of this first part, is on the sacrifice of Christ. And a reaffirmation and a reteaching that the Mass is the representation of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ on Calvary, made sacramentally present in an unbloody manner on our altar. Uh, put it that's that's a mouthful, but people don't understand. Most Catholics I talk to don't understand that the Mass is a sacrifice. It's the sacrifice of Christ's body and blood for our salvation, and and so this section discusses that and and helps us understand that more deeply. The second section in Part One is on the real presence, the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and again the strong reaffirmation that. On the altar after the consecration, there is no more bread. There is no more wine. There's only the appearance of bread and the appearance of wine. Mm-hmm. But there is no wine. There is no bread. It is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. Its substance has changed, that transubstantiation that the church teaches. So this is just a strong affirmation of our belief in the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Section 3 in this part deals with communion with Christ in the church. So this talks about our Eucharistic communion and when we receive the Eucharist, how that brings us in closer communion with Christ, but also in closer communion with one another in the body of Christ and builds us up so that we become more and more what we receive, the body of Christ. Well, then the, the, the second 
part of this document is our response. Part two is what is our response to what we believe? If we believe this, mm-hmm. if we believe that the Mass is the presence, as the renewal of the sacrifice of Christ, the representation of that sacrifice, if we believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, and if we believe in participating in Mass and receiving him in Holy Communion, we are brought into deeper communion with him and with one another, what does that mean for us? How do we respond to that? So that's what this section or part deals with. So the first section in this talks about thanksgiving and worship, how if we truly believe these things, it has to move our hearts to give thanks Mm -hmm. to God, but also to worship, to worship uh, the Eucharistic mystery. Uh, Section, uh, second section in this part deals with transformation in Christ, that in celebrating the Eucharist and receiving the body and blood of the Lord, we are transformed. Our lives should be transformed. And the final section here uh, in this part is on conversion. Mm-hmm. And this talks about living a life of what the bishops have sort of coined as Eucharistic coherency or consistency, that our lives must uh, mirror the mystery that we celebrate, and we, we, we have to be converted. If we aren't converted, uh, then then we are sort of not living the Eucharistic mystery in an honest and open way. So this deals with our disposition to receive the sacrament. Uh, and this is this controversial section on, on, on public officials who, in a, who obstinately persist in manifest grave sin are not to be admitted to Holy Communion uh, because of the scandal that that causes. And maybe we can talk in more detail about that in, in another program. But it's, 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 it's that part of that response to mm-hmm. the Eucharistic ministry. It calls for a conversion of heart right. and that we have to live a life that is consistent with the Eucharistic mystery, consistent with what we believe about what Jesus has done for us yeah. in the Eucharist. So anyway, that was kind of the, uh, a major part of the, of the work of the conference. I realize I just rambled on for most of the radio show here and uh, Dean and Marie, you didn't get a word in edgewise, <laughs> but okay. there's a lot to cover there. There is a lot to cover, and I think as we are into this transition from Advent to Christmas, uh, and we'll make sure that there's a link to that document, yeah, because I think idea. what a great opportunity to read, to reflect in Holy Hour, in small groups, and I think that's what's going to be unpacked yep. in the months to come, is to really look at this document to be a guide, to let the Holy Spirit work, because what do we believe? We have to reflect that in how we live our daily lives. So uh, what a great emphasis for us. And we'll continue to pray for the bishops during this difficult time. Our our priests who have to work uh, extra during it. We'll talk yeah, about Christmas don't, next don't week. Don't worry about the bishops. It's the pastors <laughs> it's and the priests pastors. and the parishes that are working yes, hard right now. Absolutely. Well, thank you for the update, though. I'm really excited to hear about this. And we're looking forward to more revival in Western Oregon in the months to come. So with that, would you please help us close with your blessing? Yes. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come down upon you, your families, your loved ones, especially at this holy time of year, and be with you always. Amen. Amen. And thank you for joining us on this edition of The Voice of the Shepherd. We look forward to sharing with you again next week. For Archbishop Alexander Sample, I'm Dina Marie Hale, and until our next encounter, may you have a blessed week. You've been listening to The Voice of the Shepherd with Archbishop Alexander Sample a production of the Archdiocese of Portland in Oregon. To subscribe to this podcast and access to all of our past shows, visit moderndayradio.com. Please email your comments and questions for the show to info at archdpdx.org. 
Learn more about the Archdiocese of Portland in Oregon online at archdpdx.org. Peace be with you.